I'll be reading Deuteronomy 28, verses 1 through 2, and verses 15. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to go with this one. Yeah, just these are new batteries, sorry. Good start. All right. <laughs> All right, so curses have started in the microphone. It's been a while since the uh, demon of technology has plagued us here at Sojourn, but it was bound for him to show his face again, and here it is. Uh, I don't know if you've had moments like this, but uh, especially in the summer, I remember, I think back to playing baseball in summer league baseball in the midst of the uh, burning heat of Oklahoma. That's what we have to do. We don't climb mountains because they aren't any, so we, we throw balls around in the dirt. And one time I took baseball pretty seriously, and one time I can remember very distinctly that I took it too seriously and was starting to get upset. I don't know if it was my performance, the umpire, I don't remember. I started kicking the dirt around uh, on the mound, though. And then a distinct moment happened in my life that helped shape me for the future. I was met in the dugout by my father, and he gave, in certain terms, what would happen if I continued in said behavior. He gave me some unmistakable awareness that there are consequences for those kinds of actions with him. Should I continue to kick the dirt around, I would no longer be playing baseball, probably not even in the dugout, that all of my actions had some sort of consequence that he was willing to take out on me if necessary. Maybe you've had moments like that in your life where it's like, I'm going to tell you where this is going. If it goes in this direction, I want you to be aware that this is what's going to happen as a consequence. And that unmistakable awareness protected me, kept me from some of the curses, as they were, that could have fallen upon me. And God does something similar here in Deuteronomy chapter 28. All 68 verses of it, he, he gives some blessings and some curses that he will pour out, showing them that all of their actions have consequences and matter to give Israel an unmistakable awareness that their actions will have consequences in the promised land. And to encourage his people in every way, he promises blessings and he warns of curses. So that Israel will walk into the promised land 
as a nation, as a people, as individuals who are unmistakably aware of what lies before them in their choices in the promised land. Blessing and curse are held out in front of them. And God goes further than he's gone so far in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 28 to give not just that this is a consequence of your actions, but he fills in the content. He gives the content of the blessings. He gives the content of the cursings in, in the, of the curses in chapter 28. So not forgetting the context, we're, we're on the edge of the promised land. It, all the people are gathered. They're split up in between two mountains, right? There's a mountain of blessing. There's a mountain of cursing. And in chapter 27, we only covered the, the curse side, right? The, the, this is the curse mountain, and half of them got on there. They drew the short straw, so they're on the, the curse mountain. But there's more than just curses. And so not forgetting that half of the people are in Mount Gerizim to bless, Moses begins with the content of blessing. Look in chapter 8, 28, verse 1. He says, and if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And nations is going to be used and peoples of the earth three times within this chapter, re reminding us of the promises that God had linked to Israel. Abraham's offspring were to be a blessing, not just to their own people, but they were to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And Israel is this, this light to the nations as they live in a righteous way, in obedience to God. They are to be a, a compelling nation to the nations surrounding them of what the good life really is, lived under the good reign and rule of God. And their obedience to God and to his word is inevitably linked to that mission of being a light to those nations. Those two go together so closely, especially here in Deuteronomy. And here he says if there's obedience, then they, Israel as a nation is going to have preeminence. They're, they're going to be first among the nations. Now that's not a bad status for a nation that as a whole was not very far removed from being slaves. To being one of the lowest nations, and God's going to exalt them to be over all of the nations. This is not bad for a nation that was described as not great in number, but actually the fewest. Do you remember that in chapter 7 of Deuteronomy? Chapter 7, God reminds them of, of where they came from, and he says in verse 7, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the people. Think of the might of their God that they could go from being slaves in Egypt to being a lowly nation to the one that nation that has a few in numbers is not mighty, is not powerful. When you look out at the scope of the nations, including just in Canaan, they're not mighty, they're not powerful, they're not numerous. And God is going to say, I'm going to give you preeminence over all of those nations. That doesn't point to their might. Again, God reminds them of that. It points to God's might. That they can go from being slaves in Egypt to, being, to standing above all the nations, but that is if, he says in verse 1, if, if, and that word if can be tricky, because it can make the blessings of verses 1 through 14 seem as if that they are going to be earned, seem as if that if you do the right things and you plug in the right formula, then God is going to produce this outcome. But we need to not make that mistake. God is never indebted to any Israel or anyone to bless them. It is God who had redeemed them. It is God who chose them. It is God who loved them. Not because of anything that they had done, but because he chose them, because he loved them, and he redeemed them and saved them and sustained them and provided for them, not because he owed them anything, but because of who he is. 
It's God who gave them this word to live by so that they could obey. In his mercy, he spoke so that they might know him and know what he would want from them and desire. It's out of his goodness that they have all things that, he, that they have at this point. It's out of his love that he calls them, as he did in chapter 7, his very own possession. We read verse 7, verse 8. He says, it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. It is because the Lord loves you. You have not earned it or deserved it. You will not earn it in the promised land by your obedience. The Lord loves you, and he promises blessing for obedience, not because of their obedience itself, but because of his goodness towards them, because of his love for them, because they are his people, and he chose them. Because they're his, he promises blessing with their obedience in the promised land. Blessings then are are God's goodness on display in their lives. They're him pouring out his grace to these people that he has made his very own. Israel then is to be this nation that's a showcase of what it looks like to live life with God, of of what it looks like to be God's people. And, And attached to that, out of the overflow of the graciousness and goodness of God, is a life of blessing. Obedience in the promised land does not lead God's indebtedness to them. That somehow now he owes them blessing in some way. But obedience in the promised land is very much specifically the context for which God promises blessing in the promised land. In in verse 2 he says, And all these blessings shall come upon you and shall overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. There's another if. Again, blessings aren't earned, but but notice how they're personified. They're almost like they're, they're a person. They overtake you. There's a power there. They're going to overtake you with power. They're personified with power. So these blessings aren't earned. They're received. They're actually just kind of like they just happen to them. They're received. They're walked in. Verse 3 continues. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall be you be when you go out. Blessings over and over again. Blessed, blessed, blessed. And, and here they are. They're pervasive. They overtake overpower every part of their lives. They're pervasive in Israel and every part of the life of Israel. And there's some beautiful specificity here, isn't there? In all these things, the the daily things, the common things, the routine things, the the normal activities that anyone in Israel might participate in and will participate in the promised land are promised blessing from above, from heaven. God promises heaven's blessing in these daily things. These blessings, they... They extend so far, don't they? Imagine being the people of God, being Israel on the, on the edge of the promised land after looking in the rear view and seeing the wilderness. You, you know what's in the wilderness? There were enemies around them. They, they were dependent daily. right? They, they didn't have a, a great provision from the land. They, they, they were in a, a barren place. And then think about hearing these, these blessings that God is, is giving. Imagine being in the wilderness with enemies around and enemies in front and, and saying, hearing, God's going to place you above all these nations. That th- there's going to be victory. And he extends this out to their enemies in verse 7. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. 
and they shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. Again, as those who'd been in the wilderness, where they'd known defeat, they'd tasted defeat. Some of their parents and grandparents had, had been defeated in the wilderness by these enemies because of their disobedience, knowing that they were promised victory over their enemies, knowing, knowing that as they go into the promised land, these are people more mighty than we are. They have fortified cities and, and hearing God saying, no, there's going to be blessing there. They're going to flee seven directions, which I don't know how many directions I want the enemy to flee, but seven will do, right? They're going to flee seven directions. You're going to have victory there hearing all of that. Hearing what God's going to bless them with in the promised land after they daily went out to collect manna and, and had to look to the Lord to provide water. Would, would have been a, an amazing amount of words hitting them with such grace. And both the, the lack of food and water as well as well the fear of the enemies ha, has caused them in the wilderness to stumble into disobedience as they started relying on other things other than the Lord for those. And walking in disobedience did not help their case. And in the promised land, food and water and their enemies are all going to be places, he says, where the Lord establishes blessing. Verse 9 says, the Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself as he has shown you, as he has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. If again. He keeps putting obedience and the response of obedience to all that God has promised to them, to all that he's already done for them. He keeps putting that response of obedience in front of them so that they would know that it squarely falls on their shoulders to respond in the right kind of way to what God has done and promises to do. Verse 10, and all the peoples of the earth, they shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they shall be afraid of you. Perhaps this looks something like what we see from Rahab when they enter into the promised land in Joshua chapter 2, we, we get a little insight about what maybe what the nations were thinking as Israel starts marching into the promised land. When, when Rahab speaks to the spies that are sent in, here's what she says. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Sounds like some of the blessings have already been poured out. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites when you went beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there is no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I dealt kindly with you, and you also will deal kindly with me and with my father's house, and give me a sure sign that you will save alive, my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all who belong to them, to deliver our lives from death. She says, we've seen, we've heard, we know. And the nations would likely had a similar thought. Like, we've heard about Egypt, how could we not? I mean, word went out of what God had done to deliver them out of slavery. Seas don't part all the time, and so when it does, and that word starts traveling, and, and nations don't fall from other slave nations very often. Those victories don't happen very often, so the word gets out, and it reaches to Rahab, and it likely reached all these nations that were in the promised land, and they're recognizing something. Uh, I think their God might be God. They should certainly know as the people of God, that God is capable of doing exactly what he has promised to do here in these blessings. They, they know their history of how they came out of Egypt. They, they have just walked through the kingdoms 
that they defeated with Sihon and Og as their kings. They, they have seen the Lord's might and power in these ways. And so when God promises these things, they should connect it to something that's actually happened. They know that this is possible. They know God is capable of this. They've already walked through some of this. The land they're entering has been described as this place that's flowing with milk and honey. It's an abundant place. And, and God says this is going to be evident in this land. Verse 11, the Lord is going to make you abound in prosperity in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your livestock and in the fruit of your ground within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hands and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. And you shall go only up and not down. It, Moses is, is very specific. He, he's very clear about who all is, who is behind all of these blessings. Who is bringing these blessings about. In the first couple verses, right, he, he went, blessed be when you do these things. He, he said these blessings. In verses 7 through 13, he starts saying, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. He is very clear about who is doing this. So when they get into the promised land, they should make no mistake of saying that a God is doing this. The, the God of fertility is doing this. The, the God of agriculture is doing this. The God of the skies is doing this. No, it's the Lord, specifically the Lord, the Lord their God is doing this. This is not Mother Nature uh, shining upon them in the promised land. This is not La Nina weather patterns helping the, the ground stay more fertile in the promised land. This is not their human ingenuity as if they figured out agriculture more than the nations in the promised land. This is the Lord who's doing these things. He's the one who promised it. Notice verse 7 through 14, the Lord will, it's on repeat, so that there's no mistake that when they get in there and these blessings come, there's no mistake on where they came from, who brought them about. And notice that that's also going to be no mistake from the nations as well. They're all going to know. The peoples of the earth are going to know. They're going to understand these blessings are from their God. They're from the Lord. That is, if. In, in verse 13 and 14, Moses ends the section of blessing in a similar way to the way he began it. If. Verse 13. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, being careful to do them. And if you do not aside, turn aside from any of the words that I command you today, to the right hand or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. And if that's true, he says you're going to go up and not down, which is the direction you want to go, right? You want to go up and not down. If, again, directional language, very catchy from, from Moses, you're going to go up and not down if you don't move left or right. You stay centered on the word of God. You stay faithful to God's word and what he has put before you. Stay obedient to the one who's pouring out his goodness and blessing to you. Verses 1 through 14 are a tremendous description of Israel's best life in the promised land that God is using to encourage them to obey. He lays out these blessings and not just that he'll bless them. He gives the content of these blessings with very specific items, daily things, so that they could be encouraged rightly that this happens when you walk in obedience. He is inspiring and, and alluring them to the path of obedience to his word. Think of the blessing of these promised blessings. 
again, it's, it's not just the content, but just the declaration that there's going to be blessings. That the has them recite them and hear them in, all, in one another's company is a major blessing. Something of the kindness and the goodness of God is displayed in the declaration of these promised blessings. I love what one theologian said here. That the eye of our mind being too dim to be attracted by the mere beauty of goodness, our, our most merciful Father has been pleased in his great indulgence to allure us to love and long after it by the hope of reward. He accordingly declares that rewards for virtue are treasured up with him, that none who yield obedience to his commands will labor in vain. Before they enter into the promised land, he fills their imagination with this is what life could be like if you walk in obedience, to allure them to that path, to inspire them to love him with their heart and respond to his love by walking in obedience. He is trying to inspire that Deuteronomy 6-4 love. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and might. Because he has first loved you, chosen you, brought you to this place, given you this place, and he is alluring them, inspiring them to obey him. These are no empty promises. God has shown himself as one who can deliver greatly in even the very daily activities of their lives. And they're to walk into the promised land with the confidence that their obedience to this God who has first loved them will be the path of blessing. And God has not hidden it. He's told it to them. He's repeated it. He wants them to hear it again right before they walk in so that they would know this is the path of obedience. This is what it looks like. God's kindness is shown in this, in that none of this, again, is owed. He is not indebted to them. He doesn't owe them blessing. But he's the one who chose them, loved them, redeemed them, kept them in the wilderness even while they were rebellious so that he could bring them to this point and bless them in the promised land if they walk in obedience. Israel's story is a story of the grace of God at work, in and among a people. He doesn't owe them any blessing. Israel instead, in response to what all that God has done in creation and in redemption of their lives, Israel owes him all of their allegiance as their creator, as, it, as he is their creator. They owe him their full devotion, their wholehearted loyalty as he has redeemed them. He has bought them from slavery. He could demand obedience without any sort of promise to blessing at all. And they should give it to him. They owe him. They should obey because he says to obey. But God shows his goodness in that he promises to reward their obedience at every turn. Even in the mundane daily routine activities. That none of their labors that he commands will be in vain. That they won't be met without blessing. And that is so like God. To be so good, to be so kind, to be so gracious that he would attach to things that we owe to him blessing. He's so ready to pour out blessing. I love the story, the parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15. It's, the, it's called the parable of the prodigal son, but the son rejects the father, runs away, wastes his life, and is miserable. And turns back and says, maybe if I can just be a servant in my father's house. Now, he's disgraced his father. He's turned away from him. Everyone would have known, like, what a kind of father would have a son that would do this. I mean, it, a horrible, horrible situation. 
And yet, you remember the story, right? The son comes back thinking, maybe if, if I could just be a servant, that would be enough. And the father, he, he sees him, and what does he do? He comes running after him. And he doesn't come running after him and say, well, all right, tell me your I'm sorry speech, right? He doesn't say, hey, you've got some work to do to make this up to me before I welcome you into the house. What does he do? It is so the character of God that he runs to him, and he starts wrapping him in blessings. Let's have a party. Bring the good stuff. Like, put a robe on and a ring on. Like, we want to celebrate because he is lost and he's found. It's so like God to meet us in the midst of our mess with great blessing. Think of Jesus on the cross. Gasping for breath. And what does he do? He, he looks around to the needs of others and prays, Father, forgive them. He, he listens to uh, a couple criminals. One of them is just kind of continues to taunt him. Hey, could you get us out of here? That'd be great as a joke. And the other one starts to figure out like something's different in this man. And he says, hey, could you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus isn't like, dude, you haven't proven anything to me yet. I don't even know if you love me. He, he doesn't say anything like, well, what's the doctrine of justification first? He stops and he speaks to a man when he has a few breaths left. That is so like God. This is a father who loves to pour out good gifts on his children. There are no other gods like this. No other gods who are faithful to every promise, to even be good enough to promise unearned blessings, and then faithful to deliver them in so many different ways, in so many different areas of life. The big, the small, you're defeating your enemies, and yet your daily activities are met with the blessings of God. There's no God like this. And he has not stopped alluring people to a life of love toward him and obedience to him. That's the life that's put before us in the New Testament as well. As it was put before Israel, it's put before us. Eternal life is, is held out for us, right? For those who believe, right? Jesus came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. He came to give them life, eternal life. He even comes and he says, hey, in me is, is life. I came to give you life and life, abundant life. That is the life that we move from life in him on this earth to life eternal with him. We move from life to life in Jesus. That's what he promises. That's what he puts out in front of us. He's alluring us. Jesus comes and he starts teaching his disciples. And he, what does he start with in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed, blessed, blessed. And he just repeats it over and over and over again. Guess what we shouldn't hear from God as people? Blessed. We should hear the opposite, what we're going to spend about 50 verses on here at the end of 28. But he starts with these words, blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. And he goes on, teaching disciples that there's a good life, and it's life in Christ. It's life in God. You might think, well, yeah, but then they still continue to go on, and they suffer, and there's all sorts of things. Well, suffering is still present, but he says, even in the New Testament, that even that suffering is preparing something for you, an eternal weight of glory. Romans 8.18 says, Paul says the suffering, you, you can think about the suffering of this present life, but what's he holding out in front of us? Uh, that's not even worth comparing with the glory that he's going to give to you. So again, he's alluring us and saying, this is the path of life. Yeah, there's some present suffering, but you, don't, you, you won't even want to compare it when you get there because of what I'm holding out in front of you, eternal glory. On any page of the New Testament, what's held out in front of those who would trust in God what, who, those who would have life with God, relationship with God, who would obey God, is truly the good life. That then leads to life eternal, eternal life. God promises blessings for his people on almost every page. Now again, these blessings don't always look like what we want them to look like. 
we don't get to define all the ways that that's going to look in in our lives. But God promises that even things that seem difficult, he says, actually, I'm working all of them for your good. And he hasn't hidden it. He could. He could have this plan. I'm working it all for their good. Hope they can endure. But he tells us in advance, I want this to work for your good so that you might look like what I want you to look like. He tells us he hasn't hidden the promised blessings for our lives. And what we should do with that, we should let that allurement call us into life with God, into, maybe if we know him already, deeper life with God, more obedience, more love for God because of how good he is, because of what he's put in front of us that should draw us closer to him. It should make us want to walk in and experience the blessings that he has promised, and those come in the context of obedience. So in what remains of chapter 28, Moses is going to flip the coin to the other side. And he's going to describe what happens if the path of allurement and blessing is not taken. What if God's words aren't obeyed? What if they go into the promised land and they neglect them or reject them or rebel against them? Well, in length, Moses describes the content of curses that will fall. Now, perhaps thinking that you're looking ahead in your chapter, and like there's a lot of verses left, and they're all spent on curses. And you might think that that sounds strange, that God would pour out that much ink. After 14 verses of blessing, you're going to pour out 50-some curses? Maybe God is mean or impure. We look in Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy has been really, really clear about God. God is a jealous God, showing the intensity of his love for the people that he has made his own, called his own, loved and redeemed. It shows us his desire for righteousness. It reveals his righteousness and shows us that's what he wants and demands from his people. In the book of Deuteronomy, he's a consuming fire, which means that this God is holy, that he cannot endure evil. He's not neutral towards sin. He's not just okay with sin. It's a consuming fire. He's a jealous God. He's a holy God. So that means if he doesn't talk about curses, he's not those things. And that all of our ways that we respond to God matter. I read this statement this week and it stunned me. One theologian says that God, who knows all things, is not indifferent to anything. That's simple. You knew that, right? He's not indifferent to anything, but he knows all things and he's not indifferent to any single one of them. And so he speaks to them and he shows us where he's at on everything. That means that everything that we do matters. The, the curses that he's going to explain, they're, they're conditional in a sense as well as the blessings. They are meant to warn that everything matters. He's not indifferent to these things because he's holy and a consuming fire and a jealous God. And so be warned before you go into the promised land. The, the long description of potential curses for Israel is meant to give them, as the, the path of blessing is meant to allure them to that path of obedience and love toward God, that the description of the content of the curses is meant to give Israel a disgust and a hatred towards sin. That they might see unrighteousness and unrighteous living as repugnant. 
as a way to walk far away from it. So we read of the curses for disobedience. Verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall you be be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your, gro- of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall be when you go out. Almost the the flip side of the blessings that he poured out in verses 1 through 6. Verse 20, the Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. Walking in the path of disobedience and sin isn't just a forsaking and rebelling against words. It's a forsaking of God. And the Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever and inflammation and fiery heat and with drought and with blight and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. And the heavens over your head shall be bronze and the earth under you shall be iron. Bronze and iron might sound good to us, but might be shiny in the sense of their imagination, shiny heavens and nothing coming out. Hard earth that needs something to happen to soften it up, but nothing there to soften. And the Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. Uh, Another group of reversal of the blessings that, that, that he promised before. And some of it comes with their enemies. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them, a reversal. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, a reversal. And your dead bodies, your dead bodies shall be food for all the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. And there shall be no one to frighten them away. These are words that you use to taunt nations that you can stand over. They're, they're horrific. I read one, one uh, pastor this week that said he would dare to, he wouldn't dare to say some of these words were they not written in the scripture. I mean, that's the kind of words that are being given here. The content of these curses and the speci- specific content of these curses is laid out in front of them. And they continue. We're, we're not even close to being done. The Lord will strike you with boils of Egypt and with tumors and scabs and itch of which you cannot be healed. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind. And you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness, and you shall not prosper in your ways. And you shall be only oppressed and robbed continually, and there shall be no one to help you. You shall betroth the wife, but another man shall ravish her. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you shall not eat any of it. Your donkey shall be seized before your face, but you shall not be but shall not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies, but there shall be no one to help you. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people while your eyes look on and fail with longing for for them all day long, but you shall be helpless. A nation that you have not known shall eat up the fruit of your ground and of all your labors, and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually. 
so that you are driven mad by the sights that your eyes see. The Lord will strike you down on the knees and the legs with grievous boils of which you cannot be healed from, soul, from the sole of your foot to the crown of your head. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. And you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. Some of the things that are listed, these are some areas where Israel specifically is going to be tempted to go to these other nations, to go to other gods to provide for them. They're going to be tempted to, to pray to the God who can give rain, to the God who can give fertility, to the, to the God who can give them victory over their enemies. They're going to be tempted to go to the God of these other nations so that they might have victory over their enemies. And God says that's the path of curse. That's when the curses fall upon you. Verse 38, you shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little, for the locust shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink, neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worms shall eat them. Now think of the vanity of all of this, the toiling, and it produces nothing. You shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives shall drop off. You shall father sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. The, the cricket shall possess all your trees and the fruit of your ground. The sojourner who is among you shall rise higher and higher above you, and you shall come down lower and lower. He shall lend to you, and you shall not lend to him. He shall be the head, and you shall be the tail. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It also shall not leave you grain, wine, or oil, the increase of your herds or the youngs of your flock until they have caused you to perish. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land and they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you and you shall eat the fruit of your womb the flesh of your sons and daughters whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you the man who is the most tender and refined among you will begrudge food to his brother to the wife he embraces, and to the last of the children whom he has left, so that he will not give to any of them any of the flesh of his children whom he is eating, because he has nothing left in the siege and in all the stress with which your enemy shall distress you in all your towns. The most tender and refined woman among you, who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground, 
because she is so delicate and tender, will be grudged to the husband she embraces, to her son and to her daughter, her afterbirth that comes out from between her feet and her children whom she bears, because lacking everything, she will eat them secretly. In the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you in your towns. These, the horrors of this are hard to grasp. Exile, other nations, defeat, poverty, enmity with your own family to the very core of their life within their husband, wife, father, daughter, son, mother, daughter, son, all of those are ripped apart. And it's as if I think maybe Moses comes up for air after rattling off the content of all that and kind of recenters Israel and saying, verse 58, if you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God. There's no hiddenness to what God is wanting. How powerful is that if there? And the purpose of the warning is clear. Fear God and obey. As if he, again, he comes up for air in verse 58 after all the horrors that he's already said through verse 56 and says, if you don't obey, if you don't fear, as if to hold out again to them, that's a much better way. You don't want to go this way. Let's fear the Lord. Let's obey the Lord. But he continues, if not, verse 59. If not, then the Lord will bring you then the Lord will bring you, bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions. Afflictions severe and lasting, and sickness grievous and lasting. And he will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt in which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you. Every sickness also and every affliction that is not recorded in the book of this law, the Lord will bring upon you until you are destroyed. Whereas you were as numerous as the stars of the heaven, you should be left few in number because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and in multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. I mean, verse 63 kind of stops you in your tracks, doesn't it? I mean, we're reading some horrific things. And then we say, verse 63, that the Lord is going to take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. I think that one commentator helps us to say, it maybe takes a, a bit of the edge off this to say that the delight of the Lord is a euphemism used to express the resolve of the divine will, that which is determined by the purpose and character of God. The, the expression, he says, is meant to connote not a feeling of joy, but a, a purpose of mind. So maybe not so much delight, in, instead more determination. But he's dead set of bringing these curses upon them should they go that direction. And so, yeah, maybe that helps take the edge off that a little bit, but not much. And Moses brings us to this frightening conclusion, verse 64. And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples, from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. In the morning you shall say, if only it were evening. In the evening you shall say, if only it were morning, because of the dread that your heart shall feel and the sights that your eyes shall see. And the Lord will bring you back in ships to Egypt, a journey that I promise that you should never make again. And there you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but there will be no buyer. 
what a frightening conclusion to a long and heavy list of curses. But again, not only are numerous, but the content is specific. The content is what's poured out. Notice that he doesn't spend a lot of time on sinful actions and sinful disobedience, like this is what your disobedience and sin looks like. He spends all of his time looking at the content of the curses and laying that out for them. And these curses, they they roll back the blessings of verses 1 through 14. They they reverse some of the promises that God had made to Abraham. They undo the exodus. There's a a, a kind of an anti-exodus happening here. Even though when they go back, the slaves, they're not even bought. There's no one to buy them. All of this and all the specificity in it makes it really pointed for Israel to hear. Makes it perfectly fit for them in their situation. You see, these curses would have hit home. They walk through these things. So many of these things are their story. What God has done in and through them for centuries. And these curses are rolling all those back. Further, some of these things would have been known by them because they were known in other nations. These are not make-believe fairy tale curses here. Other nations have walked in these things. Some of them, Israel themselves, they had seen when they were in Egypt. He even references some of the diseases that they were in Egypt. They would have seen how the Lord poured out, in a sense, curses on the Egyptians and some of the nations that stood in front of them as they got to this point. They'd experienced pieces of these curses in their past in the wilderness. The enemy had come and they had fled. Diseases had come because of their disobedience. They'd experienced pieces of this along the way. And so when these curses are spoken over them by Moses, Israel would know how near they really are. It might seem as if a kind of a fairy tale on the page to others, but to Israel... They would have known how close, how realistic these things were. And there's a tremendous blessing in that. Because Israel has now been once again, just before they go into the promised land, put on notice. They are given the gift of unmistakable awareness. They have been given a a almost palpable warning. They could feel it. They could see it around them. They've been given this warning. God shows them on the ground level, on their daily life level, what life will be like in the promised land if they walk the way of disobedience and don't fear the Lord. It's a tremendous gift. Perhaps one of the most famous sermons ever preached in America, or infamous, we could also say, was Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. One of the reasons that it's so famous and infamous both is for how graphic he is with the horrors of eternal punishment, how vivid he makes the threat of hell upon every single life. It is said that while he was preaching this, he was so graphic, he was so vivid with the threat of hell that people started shrieking and crying out because it had become real to them in a way they'd never seen before. And this is a side note, but, you know, that heartless Jonathan Edwards, he actually stopped that sermon. And they prayed, and he went down to pray and minister among the people. So maybe not as heartless as maybe what you've heard. And God used that sermon and that man and that time to help ignite 
and fan into flame a revival of repentance because people had unmistakable awareness of what God intended for those who had lived in rebellion to him. And I think that same intention is meant here with these many verses of curses. God wants to warn them so that they would enter into the promised land in the right way. Committed to wholehearted obedience to God, wanting to obey his every word, to at least, if nothing else, avoid all the curses that he enumerated and described. And so he gives them, just before they walk into that place, line after line of content of what these curses will look like. Full-throated curses are handed down to them. The sheer weight of them, the sheer amount of them would have made them where they couldn't be ignored. And I wanted to read every single word that we might feel that same kind of weight to. God wants to use that weight to strongly encourage Israel to obey, to walk in faithfulness, and part of the ways that he gets them to want to walk in faithfulness is by putting in front of them the path of disobedience and where it goes. In part, what he does is he's trying to give them a disgust, a distaste, a repugnance for the life of sin and unrighteousness because this is what happens when you do that. He wants to strongly encourage them instead the other direction toward obedience. Now, I think that when we read these curses, it's easy to make the same mistake with these curses as many do when they think about Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and to think that maybe God is a little bit too hard, and that maybe God is mean, that maybe he's a little bit overbearing here, and he's crossing the line, like this is a little bit too much of a threat, like hell in Jonathan Edwards' sermon seems a little too much of a threat, a little too real, a little too vivid, a little too graphic. It's easy to make the mistake and think the same thing here when what both of those are meant to do, I think, are to cause hearers to not look on some sort of supposed problem in God, but to make hearers look on the supposed problem in them. And when you start doing that, it's an overwhelming problem. The problem in us overwhelming. 50 plus verses of curses attest to what awaits. That is meant to give them a disgust for sin. But God's people should have that disgust because they should never have a neutral attitude towards sin because they know this God. There's no neutrality towards sin if you're God's. Should give them a, a disgust and a repugnance for what awaits in front of them if they walk the path of disobedience. He wants to give them that, so in part to get them to walk away from those consequences. The, the blessings and the curses are an allure to the love of God and obedience to God, and they are meant to put in everybody an abhorrence for evil and disobedience. That message of love for God and obedience and hatred towards sin and evil has not changed through the centuries. Romans 12, 9 says to New Testament believers, abhor, we could say hate what is evil. Not be okay with it, 
not like it's a little bit bad, but not that bad. Hate it. And love what's good. Hold fast to what's good. And in the New Testament, we, we might not like the curses here, but we have very vivid imagery of both reward and punishment given to us in the New Testament that encourage us toward obedience and love for God and fear of God and away from disobedience and the path of disobedience, which leads to eternal death, which is described very graphically and vividly multiple times in the New Testament, and it would make us shriek if we got the reality of it. But as we go through these curses and as we think even of the vivid imagery of what awaits a life of disobedience and rejection of God, we know that those things aren't enough. The allurement towards love of God, the warnings about disobedience and lacking of fear of God, those things aren't enough. They don't save. We read through 50 plus verses of curses, the content of curses, and you start to get this overwhelming sense, I think, when you read that. Because he spends so long on it, describes it so carefully, specifically, that you get the sense that Israel's going that way, aren't they? And likely you know enough about the story of Israel that you know, like they walked in some of these curses. You get the sense as you read through these curses, that's not enough for Israel. So what are they to do when you list out all these curses? Is there hope for them? In the book of 2 Kings, there's a king whose name is Josiah who picks up this word. He listens to likely even this section of scripture. He hears the curses that God has described. And listen to what he does. This is Josiah in 2 Kings 22 verse 11. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. That may sound like a weird response. That is a response of utter humiliation and repentance. Disgust for sin, repugnance for sin. And that's a right response. The law that he had just picked up and read had exposed him and his people, had shown them to be what they are, sinners, deserving of all the curses that God has described, deserving of the horrors that God has said would come if they reject him as their king. As their king. But he tears his clothes in repentance, and what does God do? Go down to verse 19 of that same chapter. God says through a prophet, because your heart was penitent, and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and have torn your clothes and have wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. They'd walked in disobedience and rebellion, and the curses should fall. But one stops, a king stops, and he rips his clothes, and he repents, and he cries out to God. And God, what does he do? He relents. That is so like God to relent of the wrath that they deserve and instead to show mercy in the midst of it, to insert into their sinful lives a little bit more mercy, actually overwhelming mercy from God that they never earned or deserved. He relents. He shows mercy for a time when the king leads the way. 
God would show mercy again as another king led the way. There was a time coming that the law and the prophets bear witness to when the king of all kings would step down into creation. And the way that he led was a way of perfect righteousness. This perfect righteousness, this perfect obedience, what it does is it shows what this is what the law should look like. This is the law embodied. This is what righteousness is. This is what obedience looks like, but it exposes everybody else. That's why when Jesus walked perfectly, the most holy people on the planet hated him and wanted to kill him. They were exposed. The law had done its work through him to show them as sinful and not adding up. And it does the same for us. It shows everybody. Jesus, in his life and righteousness, shows that we deserve not the blessing that come with obedience, but the curses that should fall for disobedience. But in the most beautiful twist within all of human history, by God's mercy, this king of all kings, though he was perfectly righteous and had been perfectly obedient to the Father, he steps into the curse that everybody else deserved. And the cross gives everyone this unmistakable awareness. This is what your sin deserves. But if you trust in this king of kings, that curse is completely removed. You see, it's at the cross of the king of kings, Jesus, where the burden of the curse, and it's only there where the burden of the curse can be finally and fully rolled away because Jesus took it upon himself, becoming a curse for us. So as these words of the law give unmistakable awareness to Israel, we should have at the cross the same unmistakable awareness. Beloved, God is not indifferent to anything in our lives. Not one thought, not one action, not one word that comes out of our mouth, one daily activity, all of them. He is not indifferent to any of them, and they all have consequences. And so what do we do? By the mercy of God, we, we follow the path that Josiah started to lead out in front of us. Maybe you don't need to tear your clothes now. Literally, but let's rend the garments of our hearts in repentance and humility before God and cast ourselves upon the God who came after us and died for us, taking our curse. And it's in that place that we need to let the Lord encourage us and allure us to a better life, a life that is life now, abundant life now, and life eternal afterwards. We need to let him pull us in, invite us in, draw us into life that moves into life. And we need to let him in that place still warn us of the death that comes to us should we not give ourselves to him. And let that ever more push us to cling tightly to him. Church, blessing and curse are before us. We see it in the cross. You will go one way in deciding on Jesus. One way is the path of curse. One is the path of life. We remember that, that blessing and curse are before us when we come together and we take the Lord's Supper. This is a meal of death. To say that one died, took the curse, body broken, blood poured out in death, but that that one that died was perfectly righteous so that anyone who would believe in him would then not have to face what he faced eternally. 
But curse is there too, right? This isn't for everybody. This is for those who've trusted in Jesus, who have turned from their sin and put their faith in him. And so curse is before those who don't take this meal because they haven't trusted in Jesus. And say, there's eternal death that awaits those who have not turned from their sins and trusted in Jesus. So here's the call for the Lord's Supper every time we take it. If you're a believer, cling tightly to Jesus. Remember what he has done. Remember that he took your curse that you deserved and cling tightly to him. One of the ways that you're to do this is remember what he's done and take this meal. If you're not a believer, don't take this meal. Repent of your sins. Tear the garments of your heart. Cry out to God for salvation, and he will hear you and will save. If you don't know what that looks like, don't know how to do that, find another believer. Come ask us. We'd love to share that with you. But don't take this meal. But church, together, let's as a family be reminded of the blessing that God has poured out through his son, Jesus. Let's pray together. God, I feel like Isaiah this morning when he saw a glimpse of your holiness and your glory and he just said, woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. Seeing your holiness is humiliating and the preacher didn't even really talk about our sin today. He just talked about consequences deserved. And we know what our sin is. It's ever before us. I feel like Peter, when he saw your glory, Jesus, in a boat, he said, go away from me. I'm a sinful man. Your word today, your hard, hard word, brutal. It does not reveal something wrong with you. It reveals something wrong with us. So I pray if there's any soul in this room warring against you and trying to condemn you, God, break their heart, turn them around. You are good. We are not Your love is self-giving. We love ourselves. And you've shown your great love by pouring yourself out in curse after curse after curse after curse and saying, I delight, I take joy in blessing you. Do that. Jesus, you are our blessing. You are the fulfillment of all of these blessings. And first and foremost, being the way for us to dwell with you and in your presence and be cleansed of all of our sin and have you, Holy Spirit, come and dwell within us as a down payment on what you're going to bring us at the end when you bring us into the promised land, the new heaven and the new earth and all of our tears go away and all of our sin goes away and we are without shame and we are with you and we are together and the joy does not end. 
We have all of that. And what we deserve is to be cursed and to be cast down into hell forever where there is darkness and a lake of fire and weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what we deserve. Jesus, thank you so much for taking on our sin, for taking these curses upon yourself and enduring them from your Father so that we don't have to. We want to mourn our sin, and we want to rejoice also that it is forgiven. Jesus, call people to you today. In the old days, they would have unbelievers leave the building for the Lord's Supper. We don't want to ask anyone to run out of the building. We want them to run to you, Jesus. Call men and women, boys and girls, to yourself in repentance and faith, trusting in what you've done for them, Lord. We praise you for the cross. Thank you for making us worthy to take this meal. Our forgiveness is a gift from you. We don't deserve it, but we praise you for it today, Lord. Thank you.